story, this testimony that Peter has told to us and we have heard several times because it is miraculous. God comes to all of us and so we thank you that we here today also have the privilege of hearing your word. May your Holy Spirit speak through Lily today and open our hearts and minds to hear your word and to understand how it affects us in our life today here in Walnut Creek in the Contra Costa Bay Area. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you for that prayer, Karen. The Holy Spirit effect, showing us how his word affects our lives here in Walnut Creek area. Well, good morning. I have a dear close friend who lives in a town not 45 minutes from here, and I have never been to her house. We grew up together, we're very close. We can talk about anything with, you know, that gut level honesty. She's been to my house. Why haven't I been to her house? Not for lack of invitation. You see, my husband doesn't want me to go to her town. Dale's company owns an apartment building there, and so he happens to know some inside scoop. He happens to know of a lot of vandalism and a lot of crime in this town. His heart is good. He, he wants to keep me safe. And my husband is a dear. So is my friend. I don't want to hurt her feelings. Besides, nothing to my knowledge has ever happened to her in this town. And even though I feel very touched by Dale's desire to protect me, I would, if I was left to make the decision on my own, go without hesitation to my friend's home. And so I wondered, is Dale's a reasonable caution or a fear to be overcome, a fear of the what-ifs. And I wrestle with such things. What would God have me do? Does he ever specifically call us to do things of which we are afraid? Whether it's fear for ourselves physically, whether it's fear for ourselves emotionally, or even socially, you know, what would others do or think or say in response? Well, some stage setting is very necessary for today's passage as Peter goes to Jerusalem and is rebuked by his peers for what he has done in Caesarea. Namely, Peter has gone into the home of Gentiles and has even eaten with Gentiles whose foods would not have been prepared with kosher food habits, nor probably were they kosher. And to that, we of this day and age and culture <laughs> may be tempted to think, well, oh me, oh my. And you know, with a very mockingly alarmed tone, say, what is the big deal about that? What is the big deal? However, there could be more to it than 
than what we immediately perceive reading it in 2016. Could the reaction of this Jewish um, group, this group of Jewish Jesus followers, be fear-based? Fear-based. Here's something that I had not considered before this week. That is the situation into which the early church was birthed. In the social, political, and, um, I'm sorry, just the social, political world of Jerusalem in that time. And we, so we're talking about the 40s or the 50s, uh, first century AD. Things were pretty stirred up in that, in that realm. The tension was rising between the ruling Romans, who are, of course, Gentiles, and the Jewish people. Hindsight shows that this political tension really ended up being something. It ended up being a part, it was the part, actually, of a long build-up to this huge revolt that ends up taking place later in 70 AD. And that revolt turned into a bloody war, a terrible war, that ended up being disastrous for the Jews because the Romans, again, Gentiles, destroyed Jerusalem. So... Knowing this political tension that was building in the background, I think can help us understand um, this political component that may have been underneath the Jews' alarm at this very offensive action of Peter's. Welcoming Gentiles as equal brothers and sisters? For his Jewish peers, this could easily translate as Peter is cavorting with the enemy. Because isn't it very hard to not let the political climate of the time affect us? Well, knowing this background of political unrest really rounded out my understanding a lot about the book of Acts and even the whole New Testament. And I realized that it probably wasn't as I've been picturing it. As I've been picturing this issue, I have been, um, would think of it this way, I would think that these, these um, Jews were just sitting around and kind of debating abstractly. So, what is the value of circumcision in today's age? <laughs> and should there be any wiggle room in our diet laws? Let's talk about that. No, it was so much deeper than that. Let me help us understand it from something we've all experienced, I believe, in this room. Remember all the American flags that sprung up everywhere the day of 9-11? And they kept springing up everywhere. We were never, never in my lifetime fonder of our flag than we were in 2001. Do you agree? Perhaps this could actually help us understand what the strict Jews were feeling because changing these long-held, these God-given, we have to remember, laws about such distinctive Jewish practices like circumcision, like food rules, might have been a very threat to their Jewishness. In light of these Romans closing in did they feel like perhaps their heritage would be suffocated? So picture how, how would we Americans 
How would we have responded if, if some group of people kind of rose up and they just told us this American flag had to go, it was an outdated symbol, it wasn't needed anymore, and what if they tried to put restrictions on our hang, uh, flag hanging practices around the time of 2001? That was the time, wasn't it, when we as Americans realized that our country was not so invincible after all. Didn't we need that flag even more to unite us, number one, to give us hope, to help us remember who we are as Americans, that we are free? And so my wonderment is, for a similar reason, did the Christian Jews cling on to their Jewish traditions even harder than they would have? You know, even if it was subconscious, where, where just somewhere in the back of their mind, they didn't even know in full why they were objecting so much to the unity between Christian Jew and Christian Gentiles. It's something to think about, isn't it? There were some tides rising pretty dangerously high, and we can see why they might have had some barriers up against change. They needed to feel safe as Jews. Now, let's go broader with this. How important is it to keep ourselves safe? I was reminded this week as I'm kind of pondering this idea of safety and, and fear and, and that kind of thing. And, and I was reminded that one of our first values of Spice of Life Bible study is safety. Right? We have four chief values that we've identified. Safety, compassion, inclusiveness, and authenticity. And in order to live out our vision, which is the reason why we meet here Tuesday mornings, which is to nurture women in community, encouraging spiritual growth through the study and application of God's Word. So in order to do that, we believe we must foster, first of all, a culture of safety in this room. Physical safety, yes. Of course, you can't do anything if you're not physically safe, right? You, you don't feel physically safe. But I think foremost in our minds is emotional safety. Can we be ourselves, share honestly, and be safe? And what about theological safety? Can we trust that what we're hearing in here, what we're learning in here, will be well thought out? prayed over, and biblical. And so our spice vision and our value of safety, that's all well and good, I believe. But here's where I'm going today with safety. Does God sometimes call us into situations that are, by human reasoning, unsafe? He promises, doesn't he, to be with us always, to never leave us and forsake us, but does God promise to keep us safe? What is God's definition of safe? Is it the same as our definition of safe? Well, in our passage today, charges against Peter as a Jew would have been pretty serious in that day. We talked about last week, just simply if a Jew brushed against, accidentally and touched in some way a Gentile in the marketplace, what they had to go through to get, again, ceremony open. To, to get ceremony clean 
and to be back right with God. But here Peter has gone now willingly into the home and eaten their unclean foods. So I wonder as he comes back to Jerusalem and is rebuked by his peers, if he had fear. He had, after all, only done what the Lord had told him to do. There's a nugget. Let's hang on to that. He had done what the Lord had told him to do. And it was obviously confirmed by the Spirit that when the Gentiles all started speaking in tongues, receiving the Spirit as a gift, he heard from the Lord. It was confirmed. Does he have anything to fear? Fear. Around her 50th birthday, my, my area hiking buddy, Barb, had this necklace made for herself. It had a slogan on it that she really, really was embracing. Feel the fear and do it anyways. <laughs> I like that. This encouragement, you know, to work through our fears and the things that, that would hold us back. So to celebrate two things, she was becoming an empty nester and her 50th birthday, her half century milestone, Barb wanted to do something special. And what she ended up with wanting to do um, as she pondered it is she wanted to climb Half Dome in Yosemite for the first time. She wanted to stretch herself in a variety of ways, right? Physically and mentally by doing this very long hike, 18 mile round, um, round trip hike and a rather scary climb up 40 stories of these cables um, on, on the granite, granite dome of Half Dome. Here's a picture of Barb as we were resting prior to going up those cables. You can see those in the background there. The little skinny line looks like ants. Those are people going up the cables. Anyways, uh, so Barb wanted to do this, and so she gathered a group of 10 or 11 Lombrenda women. The, the other picture is, is a few of us on, on top of that famous monolith. And you know, I had done it twice before, but I had never done it at age 50. <laughs> and anyways, it was fun. We all discussed uh, what a great thing it is to feel the fear and do it anyways after we were down safe. <laughs> and I have to tell you, I did have fear. I had more fear than the other times that I had done it. And I, how I know this is because I remember what I was saying to myself on the way down the cables, which for me is way harder than going up the cables. And I was saying to myself, just, just get down safely and you never have to do this again. <laughs> You're done. <laughs> and I haven't done it again. And I have no plans to do it again. But since then, I thought so much of that saying, feel the fear and do it anyways. And I've thought of it in a variety of situations in which I feel fear or even just dread for one reason or another. Feel the fear and do it anyways. And my, my Christian version of, of that, I think, is when God guides, go. When God guides, go for it. Which, you know, a lot of Bible heroes did which Peter certainly did. 
This was a strong legalistic group which had risen up within the Church of the New Believers who had rebuked Peter. Having fellowship time with Gentiles who had accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior was apparently nothing that had come up before. For these Jewish Christians, remember, all their lives, the Gentiles were pagans. They were outsiders. We talked about that last week. And all their lives, tradition had it that Gentiles, to be saved, to be accepted by God, had to become Jews in all regards. Except birth, of course. And that was quite a process. But now Jews and Gentiles were supposed to be united and eat together over one common bond of Jesus Christ? Where is that written? Could you hear them saying that? Where is it written? Therein lies the problem, you see. It hadn't been written yet, right? It had only been experienced and only by Peter and these six other Jewish men that he took with him to Caesarea. We have to remember this. Today we have Romans, don't we? We have, we have Galatians, we have Ephesians, we have Hebrews to explain it all to us. But they had no way of understanding the relationship between the Torah, which is our Old Testament law, by the way, the first five books of our Bibles, Genesis through Deuteronomy. They had no connection between the Torah and New Testament grace because the New Testament hadn't been written yet. They had no idea that Jesus' death and his resurrection brought us a new way because Jesus fulfilled the law in every way for every one of us. They had no way of knowing that the New Testament church, in a sense, is the new Israel who God would use, bless, and use to be the light of the world. And so, can we blame these strict Jewish Christians who hadn't yet been taught about this new thing that God was doing? This particular unfolding of his plan was brand spanking new. Do you consider yourself an open-minded person? How many dis kind of dis consider yourself an open-minded person? So you're immediately good with change. Immediately. My hand wouldn't have been up. I don't like change very much. If you were in a Christian Jew's shoes, <laughs> Say that with me. Christian Jews' shoes. <laughs> if you were in the Christian Jews' shoes, how do you think you would have reacted? Well, considering all of this, the air is cleared rather easily, isn't it? Through Peter's simple, simple telling of his story. Peter had followed orders from the Lord, and the Spirit had clearly confirmed the salvation of the Gentiles, and there was no argument left. And just like that, the legalistic thinking went out the window. They even praised God, didn't they, saying, Then God, so that God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. It sounds like they were marveling. 
Oh, that it could always go this smoothly. <laughs> because this issue comes up time and time and time again. Many other legalistic parties pop up in Acts. We're going to see Paul in a few weeks in Acts 14 and 50 debating other legalistic ideas. And in that case, spoiler alert, or no, I'll call it a tickler, tickler. In that case, they organize this big meeting. We now call it the Jerusalem Conference. And they come up with this very loving, very unifying plan. And it works for a while. But not long enough. The legalists continue to pop up all over the New Testament. Legalistic teachers had, were often invading the churches that Paul had planted. And this continues throughout greater history, doesn't it? Legalism even invades our churches in these days. This church went through an awful period of attack. Maybe 10 years ago now. 8 to 10, God saw us through, but it was not easy. And it wasn't as quick as in Acts 11. <laughs> a lot of people on both sides were hurt. And these things are always so painful when they come up. And this trial that we went through, I tell you what, it did have one great result. It helps me to understand better what is happening in Acts. It had some other good results too. But it really helps me understand what's going on in Acts, what goes on in the New Testament when Paul writes, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And oh, that we all, every believer, would live that out. Throughout Acts, we are going to see people wanting to woo the believers into a life of obedience to the law. And we see it all through the New Testament as well. There were, are so often people, even really good-hearted people, who don't understand their freedom in Jesus. For example, um, with regard to the debate of the day, that day, whether new Jesus followers needed to be circumcised, Paul would argue, no. He says, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Stand firm then. Do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. This week I, I got the new issue of my Christianity Today magazine. Wow, was it ever timely? It was one of those things I'm like, whoa. There's this great article in there called The Scandalous Gift of Grace. It is a great article. The article is an interview of a very influential New Testament scholar, apparently, I, I haven't heard of him, from the UK, named M.G. Barclay, and he has a new book out called Paul and the Gift. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to order that book. Paul and the Gift. And Barclay says in this interview, at the core of Paul's theology which, remember, is three-quarters of our New Testament. <laughs> At the core of Paul's theology is not some general notion about God, but a discovery of the gift of God in Christ. And this gift, given in the death and resurrection of Christ, works against all the categories according to which we expect God to act. 
And isn't that what we see happening in the story of Cornelius, the Gentile, and his friends and his family coming to faith? No one expected God to act that way. God gives the gift of faith, the gift of the Holy Spirit to Gentiles. And this really upsets the former systems of what makes someone valued. These people in Caesarea had the wrong ancestry. They didn't worship God correctly. They didn't understand God. They didn't practice religion correctly. They didn't eat the right foods. They weren't circumcised. Yet, God gives his spirit to them. You see, God wasn't judging Cornelius and his friends and family by Jewish standards. Back then, to those of Jewish descent, not only were Jews considered more valuable than Gentiles as people, men were thought of as more valuable, more important than women. And even a free person intrinsically had more value than a slave. And that's how the hierarchy is set up. That is how the Jewish mind thought that God thought. So by Jewish standards, the Gentile family and friends of Cornelius had very little value. But that wasn't God's standard ever. God thought they were to die for. <clears throat> And that's what God thinks about you. His value system is different than the Jews of that day, even though they believed they were one and the same. Wasn't Jesus criticized often for coming alongside people who were undervalued? Tax collectors, women in general, women in the wrong profession, Samaritans, who were half-breeds, Jesus had social fearlessness, didn't he? He sought out, he talked to, he met physical needs, he met emotional needs, he met spiritual needs for all of these, for the least of these. And so, if Jesus walked here today, to whom would he go? To whom would he extend this kind of grace? Would he sit at bars? Would he spend his days and nights with homeless people in our park? Would he go to my friend's town? This article that I mentioned in Christianity Today just really pierced my heart on a very personal level with some very probing questions asked by M.G. Barclay. Here's some of them. Why do we just trust immigrants, stigmatize the poor, or disdain certain socioeconomic groups? Why are we tempted to think that people who do not have a spouse or a job or who do not have a physique matching cultural ideals have somehow failed. 
whose values are we applying? Are those some good questions? And then Barclay says, the gospel has its own value system, which may not match our inherited values as much as we think. And that's where I had to go internally with that this week. They may not match, the gospel value system may not match my inherited values as much as I think. My hope today is, as we talk around our tables, is that we'll look at our passage with new eyes and a very open heart, and let's challenge ourselves to notice the hidden prejudices about who's worthy. I mean, really, are any of us worthy aside from the fact that God loves us? What does God value? And about what in your life you feel the fear, but God is asking you to do it anyways. Pray with me. Oh Lord, may, may this study today at our tables not just be kind of a history lesson with no application to ourselves, because, oh, does it apply in this day and age. Speak to us through your spirit, even as we discuss. Help us challenge each other. Help us challenge ourselves. We invite you to do that. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen.